Alrighty then, yes. No, compassion does not require... You can still have ignorance and have compassion. In fact, you usually do. Do you have ignorance or do you have ignorance? Both of you. The bodhisattva is not a Buddha. The bodhisattva may have some... may have very possibly very little understanding, very little wisdom in the beginning may have a fair bit, but a lot of it... So there's an ka- idea in, the, in this tradition, we, Tibet, in the Tibetan tradition, we talk about konyong tok in Tibetan, which means understanding, experience, and realization. And uh, so, you know, the Bodhisattva may have just even a little bit of understanding about the nature of reality and still have compassion, still be a Bodhisattva, have bodhicitta, and then the bodhisattva could have quite a lot. The bodhisattva could even be someone who is uh, on what's called the path of seeing. So there's the five paths, which also are shared with the you know pre-Mahayana Buddhism. The path of uh, accumulation, which is where you're getting what's called the two accumulations of merit and wisdom, which we'll talk a little bit more about tomorrow. And then the uh, path of, of application, where you're actually, in a sense, really um, fully engaged in practices that are leading you to realization of the nature of reality. Then the path of seeing, where you attain that realization. Then the path of learning, where you deepen it. And it becomes, as it becomes deeper and deeper, more and more obscurations are eliminated. And then finally, the path of no more learning where you either become a non-Buddha Arhat or you become a Buddha, who is also an Arhat. So the Bodhisattva, as I was saying yesterday, it sometimes actually can be harder for the Bodhisattva to, you know, if the Bodhisattva kind of realizes directly the nature of reality, depending on how that's happening and, you know, what kind of, uh, philosophical systems being used, it could actually make it harder to generate compassion if it's misunderstood as they're kind of getting closer. You know, they, they, they can't, it can't be misunderstood and get the actual realization of the ultimate, enter the path of seeing, but, you know, you could have, it could kind of, in, you'd have ups and downs, so to speak. So, uh, you know, getting to the path of seeing, there's a sort of debate, like, if you see the nature of reality, does that innately produce compassion, or is it, a, is it even of the nature of compassion? We'll talk about that later. But it's not, you know... Oh, yes. Suffering sentient beings. That's right. So, yeah, does... uh, So this is like that, you know, idea, and we're going to get to this uh, today, of, you know, if all sentient beings are actually in their fundamental nature already awakened in some fashion, or that that there's, uh, this is the idea of Buddha nature, or that in some fashion, the ordinary mind somehow has something that is continuous with Buddha mind, then you might say, well, at some point, so all all infinite sentient beings are going to become Buddhas, and then what are the Buddhas going to do? Because the only way you can become a Buddha is if you're motivated to alleviate the suffering of sentient beings. And this is roughly equivalent to asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's like, 
you know, that's where talking, thinking about like, oh, Buddhahood and Senjubi, and uh, you know, it's like, uh, okay, not sure we really need to figure that out. It's like the limits of our conceptuality. So, uh, you know, we want to be rational, but we want to be rational in a way that is actually directly applicable to us. And this issue is not directly applicable right now. It's pretty clear, it's pretty clear that we're pretty far from all sentient beings being actual Buddhas at this point. So maybe we don't really need to worry about that too much. And the consistency of, you know, is, is everything going to be like neat and tidy, logically consistent? When we do philosophy, when we're using the method of the scholar study, contemplation, uh, we want to be very consistent. And if that issue were like really crucial for us to move forward, we'd have to figure it out. But my claim would be that issue doesn't have to be figured out. And then there'll be a lot of other things about the tradition that are not, that support our practice, that are not like fully rational. And that's okay, because... They're not, you know, there's a method that we're using. And the key thing is the method is a method. Every account, we're, you know, we're not looking for the absolutely true account because that itself is actually, the very idea of the possibility of that is a manifestation of ignorance. So we don't need an account in which everything, like, works. But we need to start from our place where we are fully conceptual, stuck in conceptuality, and so we need to use conceptuality to get ourselves out of conceptuality, out of the stuckness. That doesn't mean we have to stop using concepts, it's just that we're going to, you know, change the way our relationship to them. Is that helping? Yeah. So, no, that's a very typical question, and there are actually, you know, you'll find scholastic debates in Tibet about those kinds of questions, but I'd say then this tradition would say, mm, yeah, you know, go have a cup of tea. You know, take it easy, will you? <laughs> right? Yeah, just sure. Yes. Yeah, you don't want to have a kind of, you know, compassion that, I mean, one aspect of compassion that is actually really critical is to not project suffering onto others. So, like, when my mother had lived for a long time with, with uh, like, seven years with uh, four-stage lung cancer, and uh, she had a quite good quality of life. And she actually passed away from the chemo, not from, you know, the, her doctor said, it's actually this chemo, it's, like, amazing, and, you know, that she was lived that long. And the carbotaxol that she was taking eventually gave her leukemia. So, uh, and she had good quality of life during that time. But at one point, she was in the hospital sort of early-ish on, and you know, she had some very serious pain when the cancer was first uh, starting. And uh, there was a particular hospital chaplain who would come and see her and, and just annoyed the heck out of her. Because the chaplain would be like, oh, I'm so sorry for your pain. You know, and it's like she, had man- she figured out how to deal with it, and she was okay. And she didn't need someone to tell her, I'm so sorry you're in so much pain and suffering, you know, and it's like, oh, I feel sorry for you. Like, it's sort of a little bit like, you know, the religious person who says, you know, I'm so sorry you're going to go to hell. (laughs) Let me save you. I'm so sorry you're an ignorant, sentient being. And, uh, you know, I can save you. Oh, I can help you be saved. Uh, yeah, I forget what technically is is the near enemy. I can't remember. I think 
It might be, yeah, Preeti, a kind of, yeah, that's right, yeah, sort of attached to love, but, yeah. But I think that's a little different than what we're talking about here. That's, I think, more attachment. But this is, you know, like, uh, actually a sort of uh, making it so that you can be compassionate, like projecting the suffering onto the other person. So you have to, it's, you know, everyone in samsara is suffering, but if they don't recognize it, and you go, you're suffering so much in samsara, it's awful. And they go, what the hell are you talking about? I just had a great steak dinner, you know. It's like, I don't care. It's an excellent wine. And it's like, that's not going to work. And that's us, like, you know, being a bodhisattva. Being unattuned. Being unattuned. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Seeing we're yes, yeah, like engaging, being empathetic, being able to see from the other person's perspective. So that's really key. That's very key. But but go ahead. Uh, so part of what this so one of the so so uh, that's an excellent question, and we will come back to that in a moment. Let me. I want to say one other thing about compassion, and that's a really good question. So uh, the other thing that's important, though, is you know there is in the West you will find when there's been some debates, and we had some of this with some meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama through the Mind and Life Institute. You know there are. There are some sense, some accounts of altruism, like in economics and biology, uh, that say if you have any benefit at all, it's not altruistic. And then there was a study, I can't remember, the neuroscientist some years ago about the sort of warm glow of engaging in like generosity, you know, giving, basically. It's an fMRI study. And so there were some people saying, oh, well, you know, that means it's not really altruism because, you know, you felt good about it. That is, from this perspective, that's like not so. Because the compassion, like actually, and the Dalai Lama sort of says sometimes it's like, you know, it's a side effect. It's a, you feel great. And that's, you know, part of what keeps motivating you. Yeah, it's sort of, but it's my, if it's self-interest, then, then you're in trouble. But if it like, but the idea that, you know, if you get attached to that or you need it to happen, then that's, it's better than not having anything. But, uh, you know, really not meant to worry or be concerned about the, those kinds of outcomes, those kinds of side effects, but they are there. And that's actually part of what it means to be compassionate, actually, is the joy of compassion that occurs while you're doing it. And that's part of the purpose of being compassionate as a, as a part of the method. So it's said that in the Mahayana, like uh, the view is the two truths, right? So to the extent that we have a view, we don't, we don't absolutize the view, but the view is the two truths, which is basically emptiness. We're going to talk about emptiness more later today. And, uh, uh, the, con- and the conventional, the interdependent emptiness and interdependence. Ultimate conventional emptiness, interdependence. Things are empty of a fixed nature, and completely interdependent in their actu- in their identities. Uh, and then uh, the path is uh, method in wisdom, and the me- method is compassion. There are many other things you do as methods, but they all like the in a sense they all point to compassion as the method. And uh, and then the result is the two bodies of a Buddha, the roughly speaking, what's called the Dharmakaya, which you can basically say is the, the mind aspect of the Buddha, the wisdom aspect of the Buddha, and then the form body of a Buddha, which is the way the Buddha manifests to sentient beings, right? Like manifests their compassion. Okay? So... Uh, the, so compassion is a means to attain awakening, but it's also the reason you obtain awakening. So it's kind of interesting. It's like both instrumental and it's also the goal. And
And uh, what it does to you, besides like giving you joy and, you know, uh, and, and very strong motivation, because that's without that motivation, it said, you just can't make it to Buddhahood. You've got to be motivated. You've got to have not just a motivation like you want to take care of a few people. It's like all sentient beings, really powerful motivation. Without that extremely powerful motivation, you just can't obtain Buddhahood. But also what compassion does, even when it's in, even when it's biased compassion, and what we know about humans, to step back for a second and talk in terms of, in evolutionary terms, so some of you may have read, actually, uh, Joe Henrich, who talks about this some in this one book, uh, the, the, uh, the Weirdest People in the World. He's written another book called The Circuit of Our Success before that, which touches on this theme. Some of you may have read, um, Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari, and uh, there are, and those are some, you know, f- f- somewhat popular. They're still pretty serious books, but they're, you know, somewhat popular, kind of more general audience uh, books. Uh, that part of the theme there is that humans have evolved to be cooperators. So a, a human, obviously, humans, if they are, you know, because they produce sexually, they need other humans to perpetuate themselves but even a single human cannot survive on their own certainly our ancient ancestors you know and then you have some people these days who are like survivalists whatever and say well i'm going to go off in the wilderness and and as they're walking off into the wilderness they're wearing boots they bought it you know whatever ll bean somebody made and somebody in bangladesh made you know and they're wearing the pants and you know they got the gun and they didn't make any of that stuff Right? They didn't like make their own boots, their own clothes, their own gun. It's like, come on, dude. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Naked and Afraid, this terrible survival show. Hilarious. You know, it's like, okay, sure. <laughs> so anyway, you know, completely unrealistic. It's like humans can't survive that way, period. They can for a little while, but then they die. And uh, so, it, it, you know, if they had to do everything from scratch, they'd be dead. And certainly our ancient ancestors... If they so, if they get ostracized from their, from their, from their in group, it's not like there's you know they can walk down the highway to the next town. There isn't a next town. The human groups are very far apart, most likely. So you know, if you were ostracized, you were dead. That was it. So that's why there was a strong incentive not to be a jerk. We have a little less of that now, unfortunately, because you can. <laughs> You can just go and buy, there's a supermarket or, you know, Walgreens or whatever, you know, we'll, you go to the gun store and, you know, so you, you can be a jerk because, like, you can still go get stuff if you have money. Uh, and you can get money with it but, and still be a jerk too, unfortunately. So that kind of incentive has gone away. But the reality is, and we're quite sure of this, humans have evolved to be cooperators. The way our mind-brains work is in, in, in social cognition and cooperation is like built into it in very important ways. Uh, so in order for us to do that, part of what we have is a natural sense that the in-group, that of identification with an in-group, what's called an in-group. So there's in-groups and out-groups. And the in-group is basically not just your kin, but it's the people who are, in a sense, on your team, the members of your tribe. Okay, so you have so, uh, and you can induce this in humans really easily, right? So unlike other primates, I know I'm off on a little on a tangent, but I think this is helpful. Unlike other primates, humans can cooperate with complete strangers. So the anthropologist Sarah Hurdy has this very interesting a theory called allo parenting that where you because of the, there's some question about it these days, but basically the idea here is that humans, because they have this really big brain, why do they have a really big brain? For social cognition. Uh, which, in order, because they have this really big brain, they have to be born relatively immature. So they are, uh, um, hypothetically, although this is what's being called in question, because otherwise it would, birth would be too difficult. Uh, so, but in any case, the, the way it works out is humans take a much longer time to mature. They need uh, a lot of, ca- the babies need a lot of calories. The mother needs a lot of calories. They, so the mother has to have other humans help her. You know, these days she goes to the grocery store and buys formula, right? Uh, 
But so other humans are helping her, the people who made the formula, the people who drove the trucks, the people who stocked the shelves. But it's kind of transparent. But, it, you know, in our ancient world, the people, other people concretely had to bring her food, you know, had to support her, right, in order for her to survive. So there is a sense in which, like, the group is survival. Those people are your are, are, are survive. Now, that's a kin relationship, which you also see in some other primates, some degree of cooperation with kin groups, like in chim- chimpanzees. But if you took 100 chimpanzees, so Sarah Hurdy talks about this idea that humans need others in order to raise their children, in order to reproduce, not just sexually, but like survival. If you take 100 chimpanzees, says Sarah Hurdy, and you like, you know, when you go, you board a plane, you're like board a plane with 100 strangers, you know, and even if you've never been on a plane, you kind of get, you know, you know, kind of figure out what to do, you just follow the other people, you get in there, you know, you've got a seat number, everyone sort of follows the rules, they even help each other usually, occasionally there's disputes, but it's, you know, pretty rare, and, then, you know, it, uh, she said, if you took a hundred chimpanzees who didn't know each other and put them on a plane, there'd be blood everywhere, right? So we can cooperate with non, non-kin, but not just non-kin, non-kin that we don't even know, right? And we do that all the time, actually, like driving down the highway. We're doing it right here. Yes, exactly. So that sense is because we can join into in-groups very easily. We can have a sense of, oh, this is part of my team. You're on my team. You're, on my, you're in my tribe. And if, you know, without my tribe, I die. That's the kind of instinctive feeling that we have in a, in a couple of minutes. We, without my tribe, we die. So what do I do? I'm going to protect my tribe. And if my tribe, somebody in my tribe, one of my cooperators is having a hard time, I spontaneously want to help them because that's how we're all going to survive together. If I'm having a hard time, somebody needs to spontaneously help me. So we don't think about it. We just spontaneously, vast majority of humans see somebody in their in-group that they identify with, and they spontaneously go, oh, can I help you? Like, just like that, boom. Right? And it's, uh, like, amazing, really, fantastic, how we are able to do that. Uh, so that's a way of thinking about what compassion is. Compassion is that, right? It is that spontaneous thing, like, you need help. Now, unfortunately, it's biased, right? So if it's like the out-group, you know, I've, I'm one scientist I've worked with, Andreas Olsen, did this with like football uh, teams, soccer teams, you know, and they wear the shirt and then, and then he did a certain kind of paradigm of showing how there's this connectivity and what's called vicarious learning. And, you know, yeah, you just like put the shirt on and like, oh man, you're one of my people. You put the shirt of the other team on and it's like, can you, can you shock him a little harder, please? You know, it's like, we, we want to see the out-group get hurt sometimes if it's sufficiently, the competition is sufficiently strong. So part of the goal of Buddhist practice is to harness that spontaneous response, harness the spontaneous response, and make everyone in your tribe. Right? It's not like make everyone neutral. It's make everyone part of your tribe. Everyone is, in, is your kin and non-kin. Like everybody's part of your in-group. That's, that's how you get this spontaneous, you can just essentially manipulate that feature of, of, of what it means to be human and then like everybody's in your tribe and you spontaneously respond. So what happens when you, what is it like when you spontaneously, I'm sure everyone's had this experience with a child, you know, with a relative, with a friend, whatever, maybe even with, this, with a stranger who you still felt like was in your in-group, what happens when you do that? What's the, how does it feel? What happens? It feels good, but what else? What's it like? What are you focused on? You're focused completely on that other person. That's what it does. That's the main thing here. I forgot your name. Um, but. Amy, yeah. So that's what it, the main thing is, the, the feeling good is important because it helps motivate us, but the most important thing it does is it makes us not focus on ourselves because that's what helps us develop wisdom. 
if we have self-focus, especially the kind of wisdom that is the wisdom in the Mahayana, where it's not just there's no, like, my sense of personal identity, absolutized personal identity is false, but my sense of absolutized world is false. If I'm, like, in here, I'm not going to get there at all. I need to step out of my perspective. And how do we do that? When we're really focusing on other people. Not with the fake compassion like, oh, I'm sorry you're going to hell. But we're, you know, we're really like, oh, I see you're suffering. I want to understand. What can I do? How can I help you? Not how can I impose my system on you, but how can I actually, like, what can I do to help you? Right? So that is why compassion is a, such a powerful method because it brings the mind out of, in a way, it like is already reducing the dualism of the mind. You see that? So that's why it's so crucially important. Okay, you had a question? Right. Oppressed, yeah. Mm. So, it's, so the, the compassion that you feel when there's somebody being unfair and oppressing others, my compassion goes to the one that is being hurt. And, uh, and it's very hard for me to feel that this side is part of my in, in trash thing. So, yeah, whatever. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to, let me give you a, let me, yeah. Sorry. Let's, here, let me let me give you an example, a hypothetical example. Let's just suppose, like, we go to lunch, and you know, I come in, and I like, you know, suddenly pick up two forks, and I go towards Stephen, and I get it. I'm going to get him. I gotta, and I'm like, you know, wild-eyed. And I'm, it's clear that I'm, you know, maybe even I managed to like do a fork stab on Stephen. It's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? What do you do? Shoot me? Yeah, you go and you knock me down. You restrain me. Do you think that, do you have compassion for me? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, do you feel like, oh, he's an oppressor. Oh, he's out of his mind. And he needs to be restrained. He doesn't do harm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so. I might, I might well, it depends. I'm trying to exhibit a behavior that looks clear. Like, you, you know how I was before, and then suddenly I seem to have gone nutso. Right? So. That is a way of thinking about the people who are in those positions, right? Or let's suppose, like, um, you know, I'm, I don't know, doing, I'm trying to think of something. Uh, let's say I'm, like, cleaning, and I don't really know how to properly clean, and I sort of leave a bunch of, you know, stuff that looks like it'll make people sick, on the plates or in the pan or something like that. And I'm just like, oh, you know, I'm cleaning. And you could even maybe get mad at me. But you probably wouldn't think I'm like an evil person. It's just stupid. So here's a way to think, okay, about these kinds of situations, which is challenging. It's very challenging. I totally, you know, and not, maybe it doesn't work. 
let's, let's suppose first that all, everyone wants to be happy and nobody wants to suffer. So that seemed like a reasonable hypothesis. Okay. So in that case, when people are doing things that are harmful, why are they doing them? Because they, they want to be happy. And they think what? This is going to make them happy. So you can always count on that intention in people. They're doing this because they think, oh, you know, this is... Now, some of it may just be habit, but the habits are like part of their system of being happy. Right? So, they're, they're, at some level, it's like, this is what I need to do. And if I can get accomplish this, then everything's going to be okay. Right? Well, I don't know about that because I think some people are very invested in their suffering. They're so locked into it and they don't, they've given up on being happy. All sorts of deaths of despair, you know, these guys that fight. Yeah. They just want to, they, they don't think they can be happy. Well, it, it, I mean, even then, I think, you know, and that's a toughie, we're probably not talking about those cases. But, you know, I think it's possible that even then, having worked with some people who ha- were suicidal, that, you know, the, the, su- the suicidal ideation is about trying to end the suffering. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, it's what... It's, so, but let's so let's 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 put those cases, relatively rare cases, aside. And then, of course, sociopaths for sure. Although they're also for sure, they're definitely going for happiness. That's that's clear, sociopaths. But eh, not so sure. I think sociopaths, sociopaths are actually find pleasure in what they're doing. So that's. Yeah, well, the Ungulimala, if he was a sociopath, he liked to turn things around. The guy who cut, thought he'd get rescued, thought he'd attain nirvana by cutting off a hundred, killing a hundred people and getting all of their fingers. I don't know if you know that story, but, but anyway, we'll we'll talk, we'll we'll tell it at lunch sometime. Yeah, he had a whole necklace. The great lunchtime story for you to eat like, fingers. Okay, um, so so. What that means is that those people who are oppressing, they're confused. They think, and so that's not like, they're not in manifest pain sometimes. Sometimes they are, but often they're not. They're privileged, you know, they're like, but they are like confused. And if they were your mother, your brother, your sister, would you think they're just evil? Or would you think, wow, this person, they're really confused. They're like crazy. It depends. Either or. Yes, it depends. Some cases, yeah, you know, family relationships. But if you think of someone who is your, your child, perhaps, or, or whatever it might be, someone you're really close to, right, yeah. who then starts to behave that way, you know, this? so this is, yeah, and then there's also, con- yeah, well, there is conscious. So sometimes people are doing things because they're just stupid. Like I'm washing the dishes and I'm just like dumb about it and I make people sick. But sometimes people think by hurting this person, I'm going to get happy. It's going to get me what I want. Yes, then, yeah, then, uh, right. That's a, that's a very important thing. Like in, basically in the karma system, if you intend to do something, you don't intend to hurt somebody, and you do anyway, then, you know, that's still negative. It still has a negative impact on your mind-body, but it's not as strong. The full thing is, you intend to do it, you, like, you know, actually do it, uh, you, you engage in the action. You don't just think about it, you engage in the action, you succeed in the action, and then you go, yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, it's like, yeah, got him. 
So. Yes. Yes, that can be, you know, because, you know, what's the perspective? We don't necessarily understand the motivation of what other people are doing. So what this, so part of what this is saying is you want to restrain people who are either stupidly, maybe because they're in a structural system that's just perpetuating suffering and they don't even know it, or they're deliberately oppressing other people. Definitely want to restrain them, try to show them, like, hey, this is hurting people, right? If they're not aware of that, definitely want to do that. But we don't, we don't need to assume that they're doing it because they just want to be mean. That's the key part of it. It's like, boy, this person is incredibly... Like, if you look at, you know, if you'll forgive me, if you look at Donald Trump, who certainly seems like he's, you know, a uh, malignant narcissist, I leave it to you, yeah, like, you know, this is an incredibly confused person, on my view. Yes. And uh, that's, it's, I'm t- choosing him because he's such an obvious public figure, and he does all kinds of nasty things, right? But even there, that person is, you know, on this idea here, is that this person thinks that somehow that's going to make everything better for himself. Yes. Very selfish, very, very self-focused, but like, that's what's driving that. And that's in some ways horrible, right? Because it's clearly not going to end up that way. Yeah, it's and and yeah, it's going to. But it also, I think, the key thing here is that actually, if you're thinking in activist context, it actually makes you more effective. Because what the compassion requires is like, okay, let's really try to put myself in that person's shoes and see what could be motivating them. And maybe if I do that, I'll find a way of communicating with them and they'll stop. You know? So, like, I'm going crazy with Steve and, and, and then, you know, maybe you say, you know, okay, you, you restrain me I'm, and you get me to stop. But then you say, you know, oh, you know, why are you attacking Stephen? What's, like, what's going on? Can you, you know, maybe I'm having some hallucinations or something, right? You kind of try to find out, and then you talk me down. You get me out of it. If you just say, oh, you're an evil person. We're going to restrain you and throw you in prison. Then it's like, you know, there's not a lot of benefit out of that. Yeah, that's, that's the most challenging place to have compassion is when you are the target. But there's also moral outrage. Even if you're not the target, you can have such a strong sense of moral outrage that you, it's very hard to have compassion. Yeah, I mean, it's... Because I think it's a a useful empathy exercise with the oppressor. What I showed you in the States where I think we don't do. But I think it's a useful empathy exercise to think about for whom you would cross your ethical lens. Because I think almost everybody has that. And like when you can tap into that, your own capacity to act outside of your own moral code, it helps you maybe understand how somebody else could be acting badly Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. That desire to be I'm better than you me the activist, I'm better than you the oppressor means animal harm forever. Yeah, it does. As much as I feel that way. But if you're stuck in that then that I will say one other thing to that and then I would definitely want to hear what you have to say but uh which is Participating in the other's standpoint doesn't mean becoming it. So, yeah, if we have that, like, 
But it doesn't mean we should cultivate that. Like, if there's a line that we can find, then yes. But, you know, the, the problem with especially moral outrage is that it, it is a, a kind of emotional state that uh, really actually completely blocks compassion. If it's focused on a person. As opposed to the, so, so let, you were going to say something. Yeah, this is so complex, right? Because, uh, of course, each of us have our particular experiences. But uh, when you mentioned uh, the moral outrage, which it almost looks like some people looking at what's happening from the outside and being outraged, but there's a lot of. Yeah. And uh, like, for example, we try to not support the people who have, uh, you know, uh, either PTSD and forget about complex uh, trauma in the mindfulness groups for everybody. But it's impossible to have a BIPOC or an immigrant uh, Portuguese-speaking or Spanish-speaking group without some. I mean, almost everybody has PTSD. Yes. Almost everybody has. Of course. Yes, I was about to, yeah, mention that. Yeah, it's it's very complex, it's very challenging, and this is where, you know, the whole idea of different versions of the Dharma. So Lama Rod Owen is one of the yeah. people yeah. who... I don't really know, but he's friends with some close friends of mine. And, you know, that's someone who's really trying to address this really directly. And he talks about rage. And everybody yes. Else is like, yes, and exactly. That's right. And so, you know, the transformation of that, and there are, in, in the Tibetan tradition, there are practices that are about, specifically about anger, but they're considered to be, you know, very challenging and also very advanced but that doesn't mean that's just this tradition right so there's you know in this tradition the general and this is what is interesting about what Lama Rod is doing is that uh, you know the whole idea is like one moment of anger is a disaster like you have one moment of anger and you've ruined eons of merit to quote Shantideva or you know paraphrase Shantideva so that's pretty tough to hear if you're someone who's kind of living with anger because of being constantly, you know, confronted. It's a little like, I'm sorry, you're going to hell. Yeah, it is, yeah. So, so that's a pretty tough thing to hear. So, you know, finding the right modality is definitely challenging. And it may be the idea like, oh, everyone wants to be happy, nobody wants to suffer. Maybe that's not a good place to start or even to mention it. You know, who knows? You know, I'd love to said that. 
everything opened up. It was just like I was just everything was sort of oscillating and moving. And um, I, I have a lot, lot, a number of questions on this, but I think that instruction to get a broader view really speaks to the idea of what if you were my brother? See, if you were my brother attacking Stephen, then I would kind of know your backstory. I might hate you too, but I would know your backstory. I might have some compassion. So the more perspective that we can have, the greater chance there is to, because yeah, we were, we evolved to cooperate, but look what's <coughs> happened. I mean, the, the tribe, the Trump, there's a tribe that Trump exactly. is they're they're willing to die for it. They don't give a crap about anything else. No. That's a interesting. That yeah, we'll, we're going to come. We're going to talk maybe a little bit about that now. We are. We've been having a very good open discussion. I want to say, but I think we maybe we're going to take a break soon. I do want to say that it's some of these things are much easier when you're not in a place that is you know a place of suffering, but also especially if you're in a place where just the, it's not even about your personal history. It's just like a whole world is putting you in a place of suffering. When it feels that way, it's not the idea of opening up is much more difficult. And at least that's, you know, I can't really say that experientially, but I've been, I've been had the privilege of working with people who are deeply involved in this kind of thing, and it's, it's, it's very challenging. But the, you know, one of the wonderful opportunities you have is to be able to sort of see those different, inhabit those different worlds, perhaps, and yet not be stuck in any of them, which is the, the goal, that's the idea here. Much easier to say from a position of privilege, but uh, it is, uh, that is the kind of perspective that's being offered. That's hard. You know, when the Tibetans got exiled from, uh, when, they, when the Chinese invaded and they were exiled, there was a whole guerrilla movement funded by the CIA. And they were good until Nixon in 72 decided he was going to have rapprochement with China and they withdrew all the support and then the Chinese like wiped them out. Uh, but those Tibetans were killing Chinese. They were not, they were mad. You know, they were, they were fighting for their country and they were still Buddhists. I, one of my, my, my first teacher actually was, they were, most of them, they were called Kampas, because most of them were from Eastern Tibet, and if you're from, which is Kham, so if you're from Eastern Tibet, you're, you're a Kampa. The actual thing was called Chushi Kangruk, the four rivers and the six ridges, and uh, is the name of the group. And I, you know, my Lama like said, oh, there, I, he saw this, like he said, uh, you know, these were devout Buddhists, he had these, one of these guys had these special amulets they would wear. And he said, I saw him literally like shake his clothes and the bullets fell out had, that had been shot at him. Now, I mean, who knows how true, but I mean, it's what he saw. Like this thing protected, he swore. So they were, in other words, this guy was so devout that the amulet, the idea was it would only work if you were really devout. So he's out there, you know, killing Chinese and he's a devout Buddhist. Like it's guy like, ooh. Has, what's that? Yes. With the, if you had the amulet and you're devout, then it works. Only one of those doesn't work, apparently. Uh, I thought you were asking, how can you kill? What's that? So this is... Well, this is, this is the thing that... Yes. In the, in the Bodhisattva context, in the absolute limit, if you can be sure that this is the only option you have, physical violence may be necessary. Right? That's one of the differences in ethics between uh, the, uh, you know, the non-Mahayana and the Mahayana. For the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is actually obliged to intervene even the, in, in cases of harm uh, if they have the capacity and the wisdom. 
Now, the main danger, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama often says, is violence is hard to control, and it's hard to have the wisdom to know that this is the right solution. So it, we use it much too easily. Yes, exactly. So Martin Luther, that's the, uh, that's the ideal approach. And I actually had, you know, uh, I, I had the privilege of, of working with a number of Tibetan activists many years ago who wrote, there was a, a, there's a kind of pamphlet about nonviolence uh, that was written by one of the prominent Tibetan lamas that I translated and worked with him on. But, you know, so that's their preference. That's His Holiness the Dalai Lama's preference. But the point is that the reason I was talking about this is that you can get to the point, those Chushi Gangdruk people, the Kampas, they were like maybe kidding themselves that they're, you know, bodhisattvas, maybe, but mostly not, actually. I've met a few of them. They're very old now. And they're just like, they were mad. They were angry. So, you know, it's not like everyone's going to be able to work with that because they were being oppressed. At the same time, I've met people, prisoners, who were literally tortured every day for 15 years. I, I did these terrible interviews with nuns yeah. in the late 80s. Yeah. Uh, and I did this for uh, the Christian Science Monitor, and you know, I was doing translation work and uh, uh, video you know, translations. And like these interviews of what they did to the nuns was just terrible. Like, I'm not going to describe it because it's just too terrible. But uh, they, because this was around the riots that happened in the late 80s, in 87 forward in Tibet. And, uh, you know, they basically said, but, you know, while this was happening, I just was feeling compassion for these, terrible, for these terribly confused people. Really? Yeah. Yes. Talk so much about karmic conditioning. They also have life experiences, belief systems, things that have conditioned them to believe that these behaviors will either avert or achieve the outcomes they want. So, like me, they're both we're both operating under conditioning. I can know that intellectually. I can remove myself and know that intellectually. But how do we hold space or find space that allows us? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yes, develop, yeah, develop your mind. I mean, yeah, it's like not. It's definitely not easy. What I will say is, I think the vision of the sort of Buddhist activist vision, as I understand it, especially working with Tibetans, is you don't want to. Uh, you know the if you enter the world of the oppressor to understand the oppressor and transform their behavior out of compassion that's one thing if you enter that world if essentially my activity is just going to replace them with me Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.